Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, with the subject of swearing in Parliament back on the front burner this week, we take a closer look at curse words with the author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language. Ahead of Mother's Day, we celebrate working moms and find out why sleep could be the best Mother's Day gift of them all. We speak to Ontario's former privacy commissioner about how closely our movements were being tracked through our mobile phones without our knowledge during the pandemic in reports provided to the Public Health Agency of Canada. But first, a phenomenal Jeopardy winning streak ends as 23-year-old Canadian Matea Roach falls just $1 short in her quest for a 24th straight victory. We look at what made her the fifth most successful contestant in show history and how she championed Canada during her reign. We begin tonight with Jeopardy and a spoiler alert if you haven't seen this yet. The end of of a phenomenal winning streak. After 23 straight victories, Matea Roach tonight fell short, just $1 short. $3,601. You finish with $15,599. Danielle Maurer with $15,600. You are a new Jeopardy champion. Matea Roach, it has been a pleasure watching you play the game. You finish your remarkable streak in the top five all-time for both longest Jeopardy streaks and most money won. Congratulations to you, and we will see you in the tournament champions. And there it was. If you're curious, the clue was under the USA category. It read, these two mayors gave their names to a facility built on the site of the old racetrack owned by Coca-Cola magnate Aza Candler. Uh, The correct answer were, who who are William Hartsfield and Maynard Jackson? Roach answered incorrectly. That almost never happens. And she lost by a single dollar, uh, 15600 to 15599 So it brings to close a truly historical performance from the 23-year-old Toronto-based law tutor who hails from Halifax, of course. 23 wins, a total of $561,000, more or less U.S., about 720000 Canadian. She says it's still kind of like a dream. She'd only gone down there hoping to win one game, uh, but became the winningest Canadian. Here's what Roach said tonight uh, after news of her loss became official. Even at the time that I was taping the game that I lost, I wasn't really upset at all because I just kind of felt like, why would I possibly be upset about this? Like I, it's an, you know, obviously I had, I would have preferred to have won, but I was always going to lose eventually. And most people lose their first game. Matteo Roach talking about uh, losing after 23 straight wins tonight. Well, we wanted to talk Jeopardy. There's really no one better to do that with than Andy Saunders. He's in Guelph and he is uh, the host of the Jeopardy fan website, or at least the uh, the man in charge of the Jeopardy fan website. Andy, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Uh, you've been a, a longtime Jeopardy fan. You've interviewed Ken Jennings. You know this game inside out. What was your reaction tonight? Were you surprised? I was a little bit surprised, but also not really. Um, I know that uh, Matea, you know, compared to some of the other long-running champions, you know, a lot of Matea's games have come down to Final Jeopardy, unlike some of the other long-running champions. And so, to me, it felt like it was only a matter of time before the results didn't quite break in her direction. So, you know... It would have been nice, obviously, for her to to keep winning, but it just seemed to me like tonight 
something just felt a little bit a little bit different. Um, certainly, Danielle um, got the run of the you know the, got got some breaks during the game, right. especially when it came to the daily doubles, as well as the final Jeopardy being from the area of the country that she's from. Yeah. Yeah. A Coca-Cola question for a Georgian. That was, uh, that was someone from Georgia. That was, uh, um, but I mean, Matea was ahead going into final jeopardy. It felt like tonight may be the night she could uh, actually have a bit of breathing room here, but I suppose not far enough ahead. Not quite far enough ahead. And that was one thing during her run. Um, she always, you know, a, a number of times during her run, she was like, oh, I didn't, I, I should have bet more. I should have bet more. And again, she was conservative on the daily double. She did get to play where if she'd been a little bit more aggressive, she might've had, she might've been able to have enough breathing room. It was interesting, Andy, because I felt like in watching her, you're right. She's, she kind of played by her own rules, right? She was very humble. She kind of just did her own thing. Um, how did you did you enjoy watching her play? It was it was sort of an interesting. She had interesting techniques and a really interesting way of being up there. She seemed so serene at times. Well, I think her expressiveness on stage was one of her strengths because she felt comfortable on stage, and it really helped her stay collected. A lot of players when they get on Jeopardy, you know, freeze up under the pressure and the lights of the studio. And Matea never did that. And I think that was one of her biggest strengths and certainly helped see her through a number of her previous games, I think, just in terms of, you know, she didn't lose her cool. She battled until the end and she pulled out games that lesser players wouldn't have been able to pull out. Uh, to put her run into perspective, we know that it's the fifth, she's won the fifth most money. It was the fifth longest winning streak. Historically speaking, it was a pretty impressive run. Absolutely. And it was the first time a Canadian actually won more than five games on Jeopardy. So wow. it was, for the past month, it's been absolutely wonderful seeing another Canadian on that set and, uh, you know, representing the country so well. When when you looked at some of the at some of the games that she played, I mean, she did do a lot for Canada up there as well. She talked about Halifax. She talked about this country. Um, as a Canadian who's watched Jeopardy for a long time, it feels like other than Alex Trebek, which was clearly, I mean, we had a Canadian on set every night. Um, but in terms of the contestants, she feels like really the one who carried the flag with the with the most really with the most pride and for the longest time. Oh, absolutely. And I think Alex Trebek, if he were still here, would have been incredibly proud. Of Matea and what she you know what she was doing for Canada and just hearing her gush about you know places like Cape Breton Highlands out east and you know just hearing her talk about that you know really made me proud of Canada. As a long time, you know, and, and in perspective, I guess this was really um, you know I mean not to take anything away, this was really an incredible run by any by any imagination. So in the top 5, that's that's r remarkable. Oh, absolutely. Um I mean, we've certainly been lucky the past year to have had so many great players and so many long runs. But that's not taking anything away from Matea. She's she was very impressive in her own right. Where do you think those long runs are coming from? Because it's noticeable that there's been these long runs of of late. You know, some of the some of the longest that we've seen have happened in the last uh, in the last few years. Uh, to be honest, I think a lot of that is COVID related. Uh, a lot of people have found themselves with extra time 
over the last couple of years, just because, you know, things like, well, they don't, people don't have to commute as much anymore. There's a lot more telecommuting. And so people have another extra couple of hours in their day. And a lot of people like Matt and Amy, I'm not quite as much sure about Matea, but a lot of people spend more time, you know, learning things over the pandemic, learning, you know, learning new facts and just, you know, going down a whole bunch of Wikipedia rabbit holes, just learning random trivia facts. And it's paid off for a lot of people on Jeopardy the past, the past year or so. One of the things that struck me the most is, you know, I watched Jeopardy with my grandmother in the seven, you know, before Alex, you know, actually the Alex Trebek version mostly, but watched that in the 80s with her. Um, I know you've been a longtime fan. It was really impressive. I mean, Matea's only 23. It was impressive to see tw- uh, to see it, Jeopardy, and a new generation, and a new generation winning. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, Matea's experience as a member of a very high-level high school debate team, I think, really helped her, especially with her knowledge of the humanities and a bunch of topics that... You wouldn't expect a twenty-three, a twenty-three-year-old to know so much about, and I also I think that probably has a lot to do with her own, you know, I guess her own upbringing. With I guess her parents must have introduced her to a lot of older pop culture, because yeah. there were a lot of you know things that I wouldn't have expected a twenty-three-year-old to know pop culture-wise that she was right on top of. And in terms of just the survival of the popularity of the show, if you're a big Jeopardy fan, it's good to see a new gen, a Gen Z long time, you know, have a Gen Z member of that generation up there amongst the greats. Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, she, you know, to me, I think that Matea has brought in a lot of Canadians back to the show. I've definitely noticed a lot more Canadians commenting online about the show. And I also think that, you know, there are a lot of, Gen Z fans out there who are watching and can certainly identify with Matea. I'm speaking with Andy Saunders. He's a longtime Jeopardy fan. He's the uh, he's basically the host of the Jeopardy fan website. I'm hoping that I'm getting that right, Andy. But you're the you're curator. You you run it. Um, it's a great site full of lots of interesting interesting information on Jeopardy itself. After this, we'll talk a bit more about the Canadian connection. Why Canadians love the show so much? We always have felt a bit of ownership of Jeopardy because of Alex Trebek, and it feels like that's uh, been cemented by Matea's run. We'll get to that after this. You can never mistake that theme. It's probably one of the most identifiable identify songs on the continent. I'm speaking with Andy Saunders of the Jeopardy fan website. We're talking about uh, Matteo Roach's uh, the end of her phenomenal winning streak after 23 straight victories. She fell $1 short tonight. Still the winningest Canadian by a mile. Fifth all time in consecutive wins and earnings. Um, Andy, I didn't realize this. I'd forgotten this when this streak started that for a while Canadians weren't playing. They couldn't get down there so that uh, in fact, uh, Matteo was one of the first Canadians to appear on Jeopardy in quite a while. Yes, that's correct, because obviously the border um, was closed for so long because of COVID. It, you know, made it impossible for Canadians to be on the show for a, uh, for a, you know, for a good 18 months or so. I mean, there were people who were billed as originally from Canada, but that's really not quite the same. The the attachment, though, Canadians have, and I think we all have in some way, I mean, Alex Trebek really was... Uh, 
you know, a, a piece of us for so long. How has the show been since, since he passed away? Um, I think that the show is finally starting to find its footing again. Um, there was certainly the, the end, the, I would say the last half of last season was very, I found it to be very disjointed with all the different guest hosts coming in. I really think that uh, Alex's sudden death kind of threw the show a little bit for a loop last season, but I definitely think that it's finding its footing again. And I really think that all of the super champions this season have really helped with that. You interviewed Ken Jennings, if I'm, if I'm correct. Is that, uh, is that right? Um, I have, I, have, I, I guess you could say interviewed, but I yeah. also did uh, some work with, for him many, many right. years ago where he had a Tuesday trivia uh, section of his own website for the longest time. And I spent a couple of years as a volunteer uh, marker for that for him. So <laughs> I do have some experience with Ken. Yes. Yeah. And he's the winning, I mean, he's the all-time champ, of course. Um, and, and the host, he was, that was him tonight announcing the final Jeopardy. Yes. I really enjoyed his hosting style. I really think he's grown into the role over the past, you know, year or so he's really he's really gotten good at it good at it i thought so this isn't the end of the road of course there's the tournament of champions um i guess mateo will be back so this is not the end of the story just yet just the end of the first chapter exactly mateo will be back in november for the tournament of champions one thing that the uh new production team of the, and the new executive producer michael davies is doing is that he has already said that the tournament of champions going forward, there's going to be one November every year, kind of like a, you know, a set playoff time, like right? Just like, you right. know, that you've got the Stanley cup playoffs in May and June. So, so how does that change from what it used to be like? So basically, um, you know, the past maybe 15 years or so, um, the show basically will, would run the tournament of champions at some point, every one to two years there, you know, it would be uh, kind of, you, you wouldn't really know when it would be. The show would just be like, okay, we're going to have a cutoff and then we're going to tape a tournament and we're going to air it in November and the next one might be in May and then there might be one in February. And you, right. never, you never really knew when, when, when one was going to happen. So having watched so much Jeopardy over the years and, and ranking and your website ranks, you know, how much money they've won, uh, how many wins that, you know, uh, it's all there. How do you think Mateo will do in the tournament of champions playing against other sort of long time, others who've won a lot? I think she'll do okay. Um, there are certainly a lot of very strong players in this field. And so I think Mateo will definitely need to do some studying if she wants to contend, but then again, I would say 99% of players study before the Tournament of Champions <laughs> anyway. So that shouldn't be much of a problem. Um, I don't think she'll be the favorite, but I do like her chances of potentially making the finals. Andy Saunders, it's been quite the, it's been great to be able to watch and talk a lot about Jeopardy again and have a Canadian, especially a young Canadian to talk about. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. 
Well, the issue of swearing in Parliament was back in the news this week after the opposition Conservatives accused the Prime Minister of using the F word during a particularly testy question period exchange on Wednesday. Now, the Speaker of the House looked into it, couldn't come to any conclusion one way or another. Uh, The mics were off. There was a lot of noise, so we don't know. The Prime Minister also wasn't saying. Instead, he quoted his dad, Pierre, who was also accused of using the same word by the opposition in Parliament 51 years ago. Here's Trudeau's son and father. What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say you move your lips in a particular way? And here's Pierre. What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say fuddle-duddle or something like that? (laughs) Pierre Trudeau and Justin Trudeau. There's a David Aiken story, of course, taken from that on Wednesday. So we don't know. The whole episode comes just uh, a few weeks after BC's Premier John Horgan was caught on record or he was recorded using the very same word during another heated debate, this time in the BC legislature. When will this premier step up in this house and give British Columbians the assurance they need that they will be supported by a family doctor? Honourable Speaker, the opposition characterizes... The opposition characterizes cooperative federalism, making our country work by ensuring that there's adequate... Do you want to hear it, man? Do you want to hear it or do you just want to hear your voice? Why don't you go in the bathroom and talk to yourself in there? Because you don't want to hear answers in this place. Seriously. The Canada Health Transfer is fundamental to health care in British Columbia. It's fundamental. And it has been for generations. Do you care? Do you really care? Or do you want to hear yourself? Do you want a headline or do you want action? Uh, (laughs) Well, that kind of language is considered unparliamentary, of course. But what about swearing in general? We want to ask more about it. Why do we do it? Why is it such a charged subject at times? Is it okay for politicians or leaders to swear in public? All kinds of questions there. Well, it turns out swearing isn't all that bad. At least that's what my next guest says. Or we we wouldn't have been doing it for so long. In fact, it could actually be a positive thing in some situations. Beware even now men and women are judged differently or held different standards when it comes to swearing. And what about kids? How carefully should you watch your tongue around them? Well, to help us look at all those darn questions is Emma Byrne, a robot scientist by profession, but also author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language, and How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood. Emma Byrne, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Thank you, Ben. Um, You know, I was looking around for someone to speak interestingly about swearing. Your your name pops up all the time. I was, how did you get interested in that particular subject? Well, I started out, as you mentioned, as a, a robot scientist. I was doing things with artificial intelligence, with both physical robots, things that uh, we could get to move around and do things, but also AI in machines and how we can get machines to learn things. And I realized that the great downside we have in trying to teach robots anything is we can't make them hurt. So most of humanity, indeed, most of intelligent life is about getting as much pleasure out of life and avoiding as much pain as possible. So my interest took me into the study of pain, which then threw me over to, um, there's a chap in Keele University here in the UK called Richard Stevens, who studies the link between swearing uh, and pain. And from that point on, I was hooked. It was by the time that I'd accumulated about a two foot deep um, pile of uh, papers all about swearing, all of which boldly asserted that they were the only scientists studying swearing because, of course, it's such a taboo topic that I thought I really have to put all this together. So that's how I ended up writing about swearing. It's uh, It was either going to be that or a book about pain. Um, 
it's and I guess Richard Stevens has studied both. It's interesting that I, that you mentioned in his research that one of the things that he set out to prove is if swearing is so bad uh, when it comes to something like pain, why do we keep doing it? That's right. I mean, this idea that we would keep doing something that is counterproductive um, seems so unusual. And humans are tricksy people. We do, you know, we lie to ourselves about things like the value of how much something will be worth in the future. We're more likely to take a small reward now than a bigger one later. But when you look at most of our evolutionary history, the chances of, for example, that nice juicy fruit still hanging on the tree next week and not having either fallen down or been eaten by a bird or stolen by your neighbour are pretty small. So the kinds of things that we think of as human failings or human frailties actually turn out to be quite adaptive, quite useful. Um, and he thought there must be an adaptive reason for swearing. And perhaps the fact that we do it so much when we're in pain, that might be the adaptive reason for having it. And it turns out there are other adaptive reasons as well. For example, avoiding physical conflict with people or signaling frustration or even happiness, particularly among sport fans. Um, there are lots and lots of adaptive uses for swearing. So as much as we might say, oh, no, it's a terrible thing. With the fact we're so addicted to it, it shows quite how much use it has. And Stevens, I gather, found that, in fact, swearing did help us uh, endure pain to some extent. That's right. And whenever I get to do a live talk, which I desperately missed during the two years of COVID, but before that, um, I used to get people up on stage and have someone, a volunteer, stick their hand into ice water to recreate Rich Stevens' experiment. So this isn't just chilled water. This is water that's essentially 50-50 ice and water. And I tend to find that with most of my volunteers, as with most of his experimental subjects, people can keep their hands in that ice water about 20 to 30 percent longer when they're swearing than when they're using a neutral word. So it's great. I get to explain a bit about control conditions and randomization and the importance of setting up experiments really well. But I also get some cheap laughs at the expense of this poor person who's got their hand in ice water while I carry on lecturing. So I do miss doing that. Yeah, I always think of stubbing one's toe as being the universal cue to swear. Uh, Absolutely. When, when in pain. Um, why is swearing so taboo? It's, it's interesting. If it weren't taboo, it wouldn't be swearing. So one of the things I actually got to collaborate with Rich Stevens and a lexicographer called Jonathan Green on a project looking to see if it was possible to make new swear words. So there's a bit of a theory that perhaps swearing works because of the, the shape of the words and how they feel as we say them. And so there are a few sort of similar sounding or feeling words that have been suggested. The other suggestion was that perhaps swearing helps us with pain because it sounds funny or it, it distracts us in some way. So we had another swear word. So we had um, fouch, which was mirroring the, the shapes of, of normal swearing and twiz pipe, which is hard to say without smiling, I have to say. But twiz neither pipe. of those, twiz pipe, yes, yeah. neither of those were remotely as effective at killing pain as a real swear word. Um, Rich has also done experiments with his students and showed that if you use what are called minced oaths, the things like sugar or blast instead of what you really want to say, yeah. um, there is no pain-killing effect. As hard as you might be thinking the real swear word, the, the ones that aren't taboo just don't work. It is the emotional power of that taboo nature of the swearing that actually makes it effective. Is there a long... Have we been swearing forever? Have, have we been swearing since language was around? I think we probably have. I mean, obviously, written records don't go back pre-written pre language. Um, but the reason that 
I strongly suspect it to be the case is what happens when you teach chimpanzees to use sign language. Right. So there were a, a heroic couple uh, called Deborah and Roger Foots who used to um, essentially foster chimpanzees to live with them and their research students and raise them similarly to how you would raise a child. So conversing with them in order to you know, basically get them to you know express their needs. So they wanted food or drink or to talk about things like pictures they'd seen in a magazine or games that they were playing. And these chimpanzees became incredibly fluent and started to coin some of their own pair pairings, the kind of things that I would recognise my own daughter saying at the age of about two or three. So, for example, they combined the signs for hot and drink to describe a thermos flask. But the thing is, if you're living with chimpanzees, you really have to instill a, um, let's call it a defecation taboo. You want them potty trained and you want them knowing that pooing anywhere other than a potty is bad. So they had this one sign for everything to do with going to the toilet, which was dirty. Yeah. And they would use that to talk about going to the toilet. And in fact, uh, Washo, the main chimpanzee in this tribe, uh, invented the phrase dirty good for potty. But they would use the word dirty in much the same way that we might use another uh, fecally related word when something's annoying us. So right. if someone was irritating, uh, you know, one of the um, the researchers was irritating Washo, she would use the sign. And so would the other chimpanzees. And because the sign is made by bringing the back of the wrist up underneath the chin, uh, Roger Foots describes how sometimes you could hear in the middle of arguments between chimpanzees the clacking of teeth as they were basically calling each other a, I won't say it on the air, but, right. they, you know, they were not taught this as a swear word. They were taught a word about going to the toilet and they were taught that going to the toilet is taboo. And they themselves came up with the use of this word then instead of, biting or kicking or scratching or even throwing the actual stuff that they'd, you know, generated such a taboo about. Right. I mean, it's a foul language, so to speak. I'm speaking it with is. Emma Byrne, a robot scientist by training, also author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language and How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood. We're talking about swearing. It's become an issue. We've had some incidents with politicians either apologizing for swearing uh, in the legislature or being accused, at least, of swearing. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about um, about children and swearing. Uh, and that's a nice segue into our next topic as well. And also just why it is that politicians, uh, it's still so taboo uh, in some ways for politicians to swear and how it differs between uh, male and female politicians as well. That's after this. I'm speaking with Emma Byrne, author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language and uh, How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood, also co-host of the Nonfic podcast, which I highly recommend. Uh, Emma, we've had some, some situations here of late about politicians swearing uh, or at least being accused of swearing. Why do you think that swearing still carries such weight when it comes to public figures, for instance? Um, it still seems to be particularly taboo in sort of corporate settings, politics. It's seen as really somehow losing your control in the public sphere? I think the loss of control is a big part of it. We expect of leaders that ability to not become flustered under pressure. And as we know, swearing is something that helps us to ground feelings of anxiety or stress or frustration or pain. And we sort of hope that our leaders are somehow above this. And of course, they're not. They're human. And occasionally this will leak out. Um, I think as well, those feelings of 
uh, or certainly the outrage that's generated when a public figure swears, is a lot to do with essentially signalling what we think is acceptable to each other. And one of the things that we find about swearing is that the way that people rate swearing is highly subjective, depending on who they've been told is doing it. So, for example, if they're given um, swearing phrases written down and told that this is something that was said by a man, they're much less likely to rate that as highly offensive as if they're saying the same swearing phrase was said by a woman. So I think that we do these things about, you know, who is allowed to swear in society and what role it has. We tend to be quite judgmental. And yet most of us set limits for swearing on other people that are far below the amount of swearing we do ourselves. We tend to be massively hypocritical about swearing. And I think all of us have a sort of slightly guilty part of us as well that thinks we should be swearing less, apart from those people who do exercise iron self-control. How much does swearing vary around the world? I mean, I grew up in Quebec, uh, speaking English and French. Quebec swear words are very different from France French swear words. They're almost all church-related, at least traditionally. Words like tabernacle and chalice are actually swear words in French. How much does swearing vary depending on where you are? I guess it really depends on what's taboo. Yeah, this was one of the most fascinating things, aside from the chimpanzee result, which was the fact that we don't agree as a species about what is taboo. So in Japan, things that are to do with with, with poo, with feces, are not anywhere near as taboo as they are in Northern Europe or North America, uh, which is why we have both the poop emoji and there's a building in downtown Tokyo that's called the Golden Poo. <laughs> um, so that you know, they're the there's this belief for example, that there isn't swearing in Japan, but there is, it's just different words. Um, there are countries that use names of animals, others that use names of illnesses. And as you said, uh, in Canada, as opposed to in you know, continental France, there's massive difference between what kind of swear words are taboo, even though it's ostensibly the same language. And a lot of that is to do with what is passed down from adults and the most, uh, the time when we are most influenced as to what constitutes swearing is in adolescence. And the people who manage to discover this are the people who study multilingual people like yourself. And looking at the age at which somebody learns the language and learns the swear words in those languages gives us a good idea of when swearing connects to its emotional impact. If you learn a swear word in a second language or a third language, adolescence, that will continue to have the same emotional impact as the swear words you learned in your first language. We can see this with things like the galvanic skin response, how sweaty your palms get when you say it or when you read it. But if you learn that swear word after adolescence, you just don't seem to internalise that same emotional resonance. So whatever is in the culture around the time that you're in your late teens and early 20s, whatever has become taboo is what becomes essentially swearing for you, which also explains the generational difference we quite often see between what our grandparents thought was obscene and what we think is obscene. So you would see, for instance, swearing evolve over time. I, do, you have, do you have any hints on where it might be going, given how much communication has changed in the last few decades? 
Well, I know certainly here in the UK, uh, the influence of particularly American swearing and, and swearing from the United States cultural output has had a huge influence for ages. Um, I'm wondering if with more multilingual output on uh, networks like Netflix, we might actually get a bit more inventive and start including Korean swear words or Spanish swear words. But that loaning of swear words from other cultures it seems to be something we do. We pick them up by, like magpies. But again, if it's picked up by adult speakers of that language, we, we don't do it correctly or fluently. Um, there's a brilliant anecdote by a linguist called John Mark DeWaller who writes about his own adventures in learning many, many languages and how he could swear pretty fluently in Spanish in terms of knowing the words, but his colleagues just said to him, don't ever do that again. It sounds wrong. So I think this multicultural proliferation of swearing across boundaries is going to be quite interesting. And um, I think that swearing, we might even have the exact same swear words in two different countries, but that one has a strong impact in one of those countries and less of an impact in another in fact, there is one word in particular. Um, oh, I don't know how. To, so it's the C word. I don't yes. know. Yes, yeah. indeed. I think that okay. registers. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so the C word yeah. has a really weird generational. It's almost like a U-shaped curve in terms of how rude you think it is. So right. in the UK. So in the 70s and 80s, it was considered, you know, the words that you would never say. And then in the 90s, around the time that I came of age, it became more of a sort of jokey insult. And you'd be much more likely to say it to your mate, your male friend, uh, call him the C word, as you right. would call a female friend that. And then the internet happened. And the preponderance of North American users um, replying to particularly women being on things like YouTube or Twitter with the C word as a gendered slur, as opposed to a jokey insult in the way that we've been using it in the 90s, has meant that it has, it, unlike most swear words that tend to become less offensive over time, that one has got more offensive again. And so I'm always very aware that I'm kind of in this Goldilocks zone of, you know, women in their, <laughs> in their late 30s, early 40s who think it's an OK word to use. But women older than me and younger than me in the UK absolutely detest it. And part of the reason why it has become detestable again is because in the States, it never took on that sort of jokey way of saying it. And it became a gendered slur and the, the Internet brought it right back in that form. So, yeah, international communication is definitely changing swearing. Where it goes next, I'm not sure. I'm speaking with Emma Byrne, author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language and How to Build a Human, uh, What Science Knows About Childhood. After this, we'll talk a bit more about kids and swearing. Uh, it is Mother's Day here in Canada on the weekend. And, um, you know, I remember growing up, we had a swear jar. I never had to fill it too much. My dad did. Uh, but we'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Emma Byrne, author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language and How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood. And I feel like now there's an intersection between those two things uh, because I distinctly remember you know, that idea of not swearing around your children or the first time you hear one of your young cousins, you know, barely old enough to speak, say something awful and think, well, where did they hear that? Uh, and then the notion of the swear jar. You have, you know, you're a parent. Um, how, how has that changed your attitude towards swearing? 
Yeah, I mean, as I was finishing writing Swearing is Good for You, I was literally bouncing on the yoga ball waiting to go into labour and thoroughly willing to use swearing in labour. And I wasn't sure how I would feel the first time I heard my daughter swear. And when she did, in some ways, it was a bit of a relief to say, oh, that's over with. But also there was that shock of realising that the intonation that she used, the sort of even the facial expressions that she pulled, I could see that they were obviously from me. There is no way that I could say that she hadn't picked up that swearing from me. And I'm kind of reassured by some research by um, a couple who do research in the US called the Jays. And they find that most students, by the time they get to elementary school, have heard swearing and most of them hear it for the first time in the home. And their research looked at, you know, what are the effective ways of talking about and thinking about swearing in the family setting? And their advice based on their research was to talk about the emotions behind swearing. So if you find yourself swearing in front of your kids, just explaining what it was that you were doing. So for me, I think my most uh, likely trigger point is while driving on the motorway. Right. And uh, somebody executing a, a not entirely considerate manoeuvre in front of me sometimes gets a little bit of, uh, of foul language. And then just, you know, over my shoulder saying now the reason mummy said that is she was very worried that that car was going to cause an accident. <laughs> and it works for two reasons. I mean, first of all, it gets them to understand that this is emotive speech. And if they use it, they can expect that there will be an emotional reaction from people. And second of all, it does kind of make it a bit boring. It sort of normalises it. So, you know, this isn't a secret. Whereas if you if you say it and then go, oh, I never want to hear you use that word again, it takes on this double taboo, this amazing mystery of what is powerful word. So you kind of take the power out of it by doing that. And also the thing to remember is that children are incredible code switchers. They change the way that they speak, depending on if they're speaking to you or their teachers or their grandparents or their friends. And that as long as you explain to your children what is and is not an acceptable word, they will become pretty savvy about not using it in the wrong place. And of course, they'll make a few mistakes along the way. The only time my daughter has been caught out was uh, when I said something a bit disparaging about her bike. I said that it was not in a good state, let's put it that way, needing more maintenance before she could ride it again. And she got to school and uh, turned to the teacher and proudly said, I couldn't ride my bike today because mummy says it's. Yeah. And then um, and I hadn't told her that that was a swear word because it, it is uh, it is one that barely registers to me as a swear word. But we did have the little talk with school and I realised that, yeah, I'd missed the lesson of saying now the reason that I use that word was that you know mummy is frustrated that I left your bike in the garden all winter and now it's rusting so talking about what swearing is for and how you're feeling when you're using it is the most useful thing you can do if and indeed when you find yourself swearing in front of your kids something like the swear jar would would, would suggest that it's bad uh that you have to pay a penalty for it but given that you found in some ways it can be if used judiciously, can be beneficial. I think we all figure that out as life goes on. But what do you make of something like the pair, the swear jar as, as, as a form of parenting? It truly speaks to your second book, which is doing what every other parent does doesn't necessarily work. Or these things that we've read about that might work don't necessarily work in every circumstance, depending on the child, I would suspect. That's right. I mean, every single child is unique. Every family setup is unique. And in some ways, I've written a sort of anti-manual 
Um, so it tells you some things about what's actually going on in children's brains as they develop, but it doesn't tell you what you personally must do in order to raise, you know, a happy, bright, intelligent, six-figure earning child. Um, it just it basically says just keep looking at your child with curiosity and an open mind and see what's going on. And some of the signs in the book can really help you understand what might be going on with them, like why your teenagers suddenly become very clumsy and you never see them before 10 a.m. or why your three-year-old suddenly seems to have regressed wildly. Um, so it can explain some of the things you might be seeing, but your child is unique and your circumstances are unique. And every time you think you've figured out your child, they will develop and you have to figure them out all over again. So in some ways it was quite liberating because I was writing that around the same time that my daughter was in nursery school and so kindergarten. And looking at that and going, nobody knows, nobody can tell you how to raise um, one of the books I bought for research was this ancient book called How to Raise a Brighter Baby. And I read it just wanting to hurl it across the room. And actually, most of that advice from about the 1960s was just keep looking at your child and see what they're doing and respond to them. And obviously, in this incredibly overscheduled, overpressured 21st century world, this is incredibly hard, particularly when, you know, if you have a smartphone, you have your boss or your clients in your pocket. 24 hours a day, you know, bugging you with emails and telling you what they need. So having some time that is set aside where you get to say, actually, the only person's needs who I'm responding to right now is my child's um, is something that's really important. There are some countries in the European Union that have now recognised the right to disconnect from work, recognising that both for your own mental health, but also for the health of families, it's really important to be able to just focus on your kids and what they're doing. So if science tells us anything about children, it's to be as connected with them as possible, as often as you can be. Very good advice with Mother's Day coming up this weekend. And well, parents, it's for parents in general, but you know, with a nod to mums this weekend as well. Emma Byrne, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Well, Mother's Day gifts come in many shapes and sizes, flowers, a day out for brunch, maybe breakfast in bed. That's always a good one. But perhaps the most welcome one, according to my next guest, is a simple one in short supply, and that is sleep. Not enough rest is a big problem for a lot of parents, especially moms, and it's not limited to those with infants, and it's who are not getting enough, who are at least not limited to time uh, with just infants themselves. So what is the impact, and how can you give mom that perfect Mother's Day gift. Well, joining me now is Christine O. Oh, she's an assistant professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Victoria, whose research is focused on sleep and the psychosocial well-being of families with infants and children. Christine, thank you so much for being here on a Friday night. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. <laughs> I saw a card. I gave my wife this card, actually, that says, if you love somebody, let them sleep. <laughs> it <was> for, uh, <laughs> and you found that was a really suitable gift for Mother's Day. Why is that? Uh, well, um, so for my PhD uh, dissertation, I examined the self-reported sleep of 278 women uh, who had 6 to 12-month-old infants. And um, uh, we looked at markers of problematic sleep. Uh, for example, we looked at overall amount of sleep at night, and we also looked at the number and length of uh, night wakes uh, and time to fall asleep. When we looked for these markers of poor sleep in uh, women, we found that almost three in four women uh, in our study had problematic sleep. 
So, um, I, I and mean, it is showing sorry, that in ahead. our study, mothers averaged uh, just under six and a half hours of sleep a night. Which is not, not clearly not enough, especially with all the stresses of, of work and motherhood and all those things. Why is it still moms who aren't getting enough sleep, Christine? Uh, well, um, uh, uh, with, with socialized uh, gender roles and, the exp- and um, oftentimes dads having to go to work the next day, um, right. uh, the, the default uh, rests, uh, the default goes to moms to uh, do the nighttime infant care. And it's often assumed that um, dads or partners can't help out as much at night. And uh, surprisingly, couples often don't work out the details of nighttime infant care the way they might when it comes to, say, dividing the household chores or making meals. And as a result, moms can feel quite alone at nighttime um, because they're the ones up in the middle of the night uh, with the baby while the rest of the family is sleeping. Yeah, you touched on that. You really think that the key here is is sort of making a plan, education and support for moms uh, to make sure that they're talking about how much sleep they're getting and that everyone around them is making sure they're getting enough sleep, including their employers, uh, their families and so forth. Uh, Yes, I I really believe that it takes uh, families and communities um, uh, in order to support mothers and infants asleep. Um, For example, uh, mothers do go to, uh, often do go to uh, talk to their uh, family doctor or their nurse practitioner about their infant sleep, and a lot of the times uh, their uh, their concerns are sort of uh, brushed aside, and um, moms are told that infants will grow out of their sleep problem, but that's not always uh, the case, and that uh, these sleep problems can persist from infancy uh, to later childhood. Yet a lot of healthcare providers. Um, lack the lack the training and education to advise about um, uh, sleep promoting strategies. Yeah, what are some sleep promoting strategies? Because I I know that I mean obviously you hear that all the time. You know they'll grow out of it, but that doesn't help you if you're not sleeping, right? Um, so what are some of the strategies that that moms can use or parents can use uh, to try to to try to fight that? Um, for uh, well, uh, in the spirit of Mother's Day, uh, we ask that, or I'd like to ask that partners and dads uh, pitch in uh, to help out with a nighttime care. Uh, a good way to do this if a baby is still needing to breastfeed uh, before going to bed is having mom do the feed first uh, and then dad uh, or a partner to f- finish up the nighttime routine. Um, and uh, uh if if baby is still waking up in the middle of the night uh, to to feed, then perhaps uh, dads can uh, take the the uh, the morning sh- what I call the morning shift uh, when right. baby wakes up in in the morning. Um, I have I just touched on the the role of routines, and uh, research shows that having a consistent a nighttime a routine is very helpful for improving infant sleep, uh, which allows mom to um, mom to uh, sleep more. And uh, consistent uh, bedtime routines look like uh, look should be short, quiet, and predictable, and take no longer than uh, twenty to thirty minutes. We recommend a a routine like bath, breast or bottle, book, and then bed. 
for instance, Please. and the op- right. optimal time is to put baby to bed before 9 p.m. You looked into the what the lack of sleep, what the impact of a lack of sleep can do, and it's quite dramatic, isn't it? Uh, uh, f- for sure. We all know that feeling of not having had enough sleep the, the night before. Uh, we feel tired, foggy, cranky, less motivated, and don't function as well. Uh, as a parent, it's not usually it's not usually just one or two nights of poor sleep. It can be a, a, a prolonged and chronic period of poor sleep. And uh, mom's chronic lack of sleep has negative consequences, fatigue, uh, worse mood, and more negative feelings about parenting. And this leads to moms being less emotionally available to infants. Um, and uh, this prolonged poor sleep has been linked with postpartum mood problems like depression and anxiety, which in turn has negative effects on, um, can have negative effects on infant development. And uh, yeah, my study uh, linked uh, uh, mom's poor sleep quality to uh, depression symptoms as well as um, maternal anger. So Christine, if I'm hearing you correctly, this would be nice to start on Mother's Day. This would be a nice Mother's Day gift, but really it should be a year-round thing. Uh, yes, uh, for sure. Uh, and uh, th- ways that we can start thinking about uh, improving uh, family sleep or m- mothers and babies sleep is uh, things like getting uh, dads more involved either through policies like uh, where uh, dads and partners can have parental leave uh, without taking away from mom's uh, parental leave. And for example, Scandinavian uh, countries uh, have such policies where partners can uh, take the leave that uh, don't take away from moms. And they are much more involved with infant care and research does show the more involved that um, partners are with infant care, the better mothers and babies uh, sleep. And I suppose just having that conversation about sleep too uh, is is also vital. Yes, yes. Um, People usually uh, don't talk about sleep and they don't prioritize it. Uh, So the first step is to have that conversation. Uh, with with uh, your partner, uh, with partners, and uh, reaching out to family members uh, for for help. Christino, uh, you go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sorry, finish oh, your sorry, thought. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, finish, finish your thought. I apologize. Oh, um, yeah. Really talking to others about and brainstorming how 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 mothers can get more sleep with uh, with their, with their extended family. Well, Christine, it sounds like a very good Mother's Day gift. And as I said, uh, a simple one, but one that seems to be in short supply sometimes, the gift of sleep. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, You have a good night. Well, we learned more this week about reports that our movements were mapped out during the pandemic using mobile phone data without our knowledge, and that that data was received by the Public Health Agency of Canada. A report provided to a ethics committee, a parliamentary one, showed a detailed snapshot of people's behavior, including visits to pharmacies, grocery stores, liquor stores, gatherings with family and friends, time spent at home, and trips to other towns and provinces. The information 
was gathered from 33 million mobile devices. That's almost all of us. And it was provided to uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada to help the agency understand travel patterns during the pandemic. Well, joining me now to talk about this is Anne Kavokian. She's the Executive Director at Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre and a former three-term Ontario Privacy Commissioner. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. You've been watching this space for a very long time, and I was wondering what your reaction to this specific disclosure this week about just how closely uh, we were being monitored over the course of the pandemic about our movements. Uh, where, where does that rank in terms of things that uh, that anger you about to privacy? I, I find it appalling. First of all, no one knew this was taking place. So members of the public that I've been speaking to, they said, we weren't aware of this. I mean, we, we all have cell phones and things, and we're all traveling. Why would they collect this without obtaining our consent or anything of that nature? And I just find it just unthinkable that the government would do this. And the response is, well, come on. It was anonymized. There's no big deal. We, we didn't know who was doing what. And with due respect, I say trust but verify. Uh, you can de-identify data, but you have to do it in conjunction with a risk of re-identification, because there's always a risk of re-identification, anonymized data, et cetera, especially at this day with massive hackers who are abounding. Are you kidding me? You're just going to say, well, it was anonymized, so everything is fine? Nonsense. Just so listeners are aware, uh, what was at play here was essentially the Public Health Agency of Canada wanting to know what we were doing, how we were moving around during the pandemic. I don't think any of us had any idea just how detailed that was. Even when these stories first emerged, I don't think we had any concept of exactly just how closely we were being watched. So what did we learn this week that we didn't know, for instance, when you testified in front of the same committee? Well, what we learned this week was that they were doing this, that they were engaged in this activity. And it's before the Ethics Committee, because there was just such a, such a sense of outrage that this was taking place, that, you know, what was it, 33 million people's um, activities were being monitored, where they went, who they met with, uh, all those kind of very, very privacy protective movements that don't belong to anyone, certainly not a government. And again, they would say, well, we've anonymized it. And with due respect, that's not the point. And that's and they realized that because they came back and they said, oh, okay, if people want to opt out of this, we'll let them do that now. With due respect, way too little, too late. First of all, very few people are even aware of how to opt out or what to do or any of that. And we know historically, few people as a percentage opt out because it takes a lot of time and effort, etc. That's not the answer. You should have obtained their consent before if you were going to do this. I, I guess that, that therein lies the issue is, is not only was it the the information that was being gathered, because I think we're all aware of just how much information is gathered about us these days when we roam around with our phones, when we use our credit cards, et cetera. But in this case, I guess it was the, it was the lack of transparency. And you spoke about that in front of the ethics committee. That was really, what was really troubling here is that no one knew about it. Absolutely. And that's one of the biggest problems associated with this, especially when you're tracking such sensitive data in terms of people's mobile devices, everyone's got a cell phone and it, monitors their movements, essentially. You can track who met with whom, on what day, uh, under what circumstances. You can really put together a story. And once again, they said, well, we anonymize the data, so we can't know who's involved. Has that been examined? 
Has anyone audited that? Anyone can say, well, we anonymized it. You can have poor anonymity and strong. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of engaging in this activity. You can't just say, well, we anonymized it. That's nonsense. And there was no one involved in this, the Federal Privacy Commissioner of Canada. He could have provided some guidance. He was not consulted. In fact, I think this has led Commission Terrien to say, when we upgrade our federal privacy law, we should include, in terms of protection, um, anonymized data and de-identified data. That, that should also be protected. What could be done? I mean, you, you mentioned the opt-in, opt-out. That seems like, I, I can't imagine anybody would, it would be good to know that this was going on, but how many people would opt out if they were given that opportunity? Exactly. And if you look historically at, at people who percentages of people who opt out versus opt-in, opting out requires an awareness of what's taking place. It requires an understanding of where to go and how to do it, etc., and it's time consuming and very few people do it as a percentage. It's not because they don't care, but it is extremely difficult to do. And the government is just sort of offering this as a, as a last minute offer of something that they want to offer the public because they know they screwed up. And they did this so quietly behind the scenes. At the very least, they should have involved the privacy, federal privacy commissioner of Canada, consulted with him. How should we do this? Is it acceptable that we're doing this? It's not. You're tracking someone's movements and you can put together a real story. And even if you say it's anonymized, at the first instance, when you collect the data, it's not anonymized. Then you have to apply a procedure to it to anonymize it, etc. But there will always be people who have gained access to the data in personally identifiable form. What's the lesson learned here then? I mean, I, I think during the pandemic, we were all aware that perhaps, I mean, I think we had a certain sense that we were going to be give, ceding some of our liberties in the interest of public health. Uh, but, but you get the sense that this was over the line. Absolutely. And there was very little that I think we needed to cede uh, for public health. I think it was exaggerated, but I accept that many people felt that way. But this is an extension far beyond that. It just... It compromises people's rights. They've been violated. Uh, their personal information should never be accessed in this manner without some discussion, uh, consultation with the privacy commissioner, uh, debating, you know, some attention being drawn to this. The fact that it just sort of dribbled out and people learned about it. So, so what now? I mean, if we, if we take at face value, and maybe perhaps we shouldn't, but if we take at face value that sometimes governments need to know something about us and that this is data that's available to them, uh, mobile phone data, for instance, how to do it properly then? And, and what should the parameters be? It can't be concealed. You have to have a proper discussion and debate about this. We have a federal privacy commissioner of Canada for good reason. That's the whole point. He's there. You consult with them on these things. You can check with various members of the, the public. What do they think about this? Is this warranted, the reason that they did this? And what have they done with the data? What value has it brought? Very limited. And Kabuki, and thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Ben. 